0: This is Judith Lay welcoming you to Manx Radio and to the podcast of this week's edition of At Your Service. Moramai, Noor and welcome to a specially extended New Year's Day edition of At Your Service. For the next hour, I'll be looking back at some of the guests, their stories, and the music that's featured on this programme during the past year.
1: Manx Radio
0: We usually start with music, so let's do the same today, with a hymn that's regularly found high on the list of the ten most popular. Dear Lord and Father of Mankind, forgive our foolish ways. The Choir of Wallingford Parish Church in Oxfordshire and Dear Lord and Father of Mankind. It was last January that we first met Philip Longworth, just as he'd started a new job with the Anglican Diocese of Soder and Man, a job that he told us has the potential to benefit everyone, not just people who go to church. Partially sighted all his life, Philip has faced every challenge he's met with courage and positivity and throughout his working life has done his very best to reach out with compassion and understanding to other people with their own challenges to face.
2: I was born in Burton a little village somewhere between Liverpool and Warrington. And I went to school at St. Vincent's School for the Blind in Liverpool because I've got a sight problem as well. Catholic-based school, Catholic-based origins in, in my sort of growing up years. Big emphasis as well as education was we've got to get these, these kids' confidence up. And if we get the confidence up, they'll probably integrate and get on in most settings. But yeah, their emphasis was on confidence and that in turn you didn't even notice that you had a sight problem again because it was all provided for in the medium that you needed to work. You know, So at that level, it was good.
0: What part did faith play when you were growing up? You say you're from a Catholic background and St Vincent's is a, a Catholic organisation.
2: I think there were grounding years in, in so much that I look back now and think there's the traditions that you went through. You know, You went to church. And I think what school probably did to widen that for me was you would begin to realise there's other elements to the world and other people who have got needs. So I remember we, we would do evening prayers after we'd done the youth club and one particular teacher would always say, let's be mindful of those who have not got a roof over their heads tonight. And that stuck with me for my life, you know, because it's about other people, their needs. And what I've learned then over the years in the various roles I've had is people find themselves in certain situations Sometimes at no fault of their own. It's just their life pattern and pathway that's developed. And that's, that's where they end up. So I think the Christian wanting to be kind, wanting to care, wanting to share, wanting to speak up for, that's probably there from the word go and hasn't left me. I knew I wanted to come into some sort of social care, I wasn't sure quite what, but social care role. And I think my experience then over the time when I left school and went into the real world, if you like, then sort of focus me a bit on whether I can help some other visually impaired people here, just be prepared, cope with, have the personality to ask for what they need. In day-to-day living terms, those people often didn't have to tell me because they believed I understood. And sometimes that's quite hard because when you're going through that initial diagnosis or the loss, you can't put it into words because it's too big. So I trained then to be a technical officer, which was teaching blind adults who were losing their sight, a whole range of skills. And that's where, again, I tapped back in then with the, the religious bit, because that was with the Catholic Blind Institute that like, got my first job. So after working, sort of doing the rehab job, the technical job, I then went to the RNIB to join their employment support team. And that's where my first bit of relationship came with the Alaman because uh, the Alaman was on my patch. So I would spend time... Whether it was a, across or, or on the island, visiting people, employment who needed equipment adapting, so computers to talk or have large character displays. Um, so that would be in uh, employees over here, like government, like Barclays Bank, you know. And I'd do the assessment and, and look at what kit they might need. And then the treasurer used to write a cheque in the old days. But I was over here two, three times a year for a week at a time. That role lasted for about Eight and nine years on and off worked for Age Concern. Then I got my first chief executive's job working for a charity. I suppose part of the key message in that one was looking at income generation. Also, we merged. Then I did quite a lot of mergers at that time. Then I moved from there to another chief exec role with Bradbury Fields in Liverpool, which is the local society for the blind, and again with them. It was watching the sustainability on income, fantastic services in all of the places, if I'm honest. Um, And I just saw my role as conducting the orchestra and then just trying to maintain sustainability for the future. Because we're only stewards in these roles. It's not about us and our big personalities. At the end of the day, you've got people's lives in your hands and not just the people you're serving, but your staff and your volunteers too.
0: I think we'd all agree that the coronavirus pandemic and living through lockdowns was a testing time. But in a way, it helped Philip to make a big decision. He's had a partner here on the island for some 12 years, and with the pandemic came the need to make a decision. Where would they lock down? They chose to be together here, as Philip could continue his work remotely.
2: Cause a lot of the direct services other than the emergency services across we'd had to close so it was all around fundraising strategy and and we did that exceptionally well with i've got to say from my point of view not as many distractions as normal because you can get on with a task which was really really good and we got on well together which was promising decided then that we we're going to bite the bullet really and actually buy somewhere over here believing that I'd end up travelling back that way for work, you know, and but the base of my residence would be would be here. And then very quickly, after we'd unlocked and we were starting to travel again, the job came up with the, the Church of England Diocese on the island, looking for somebody uh, to focus on what they term giving, which is about generous donation, the wider mix of income generation, whether it's the use of your buildings, the need to apply for trust funds, what's the mix of community fundraising and how how can we gel all of that together to actually do exactly what was brought in to try and achieve, which is share the word and generate income to support the future. This is not just about money. We'll always need money, but it's not about that because people tend to just associate that with, oh, they want to protect this building and it needs a, a bell tower or whatever it is. Yes, we'll, we'll do that if we're going to continue to use whatever buildings we're going to continue to use. We've got to maintain them. But the bottom line is we're doing so, so much in the community, whether it's luncheon clubs, it's activity classes, whatever it is. That's what the wider community, I think, needs to understand because, for me, the church has got the exact right place of being the heart of community. So when things like post office were going, I'd have been in there you know we'll have a post office in the church no that sort of thing that's what we need to protect and the church is it's different now for everybody people don't go to church like they used to it's not the hallmark of of their way of belief and i think we need to respect that we've we've learned through covid we can do things in different ways and some people may stick with those different ways and we just need to communicate in different ways And that's not to say we should ever throw out the baby with the bathwater on traditional worships and congregational activity. But there is a need to embrace that difference, I think, as well, so that we protect what we've got for the community in the future. That's what the Christian base is about helping each other as best we can whenever we need to. And I think that, for me, is what the future has to be about. Let's protect this wider community. We can only all do this if we do it together. And if we do it together, it'll be pretty good. But we're going to have to trust in things that, for some of us, may not feel totally comfortable. The world has changed massively It'll continue to change. Technology's driving us in directions we never thought we'd be driven in. And I think, okay, technology is great, but person to person's really important.
0: In the longer interview with Philip Longworth, he mentioned that he is a keen and skilled musician, a talent that was encouraged in his time at St Vincent's School for the Blind in Liverpool. And this choice brought back happy memories of some very lively performances by St Vincent's Music Group during school masses. I
2: danced on the Friday when the world turned black It's hard to dance with the devil on your back They buried my body, they thought I was gone But I am the dance and the dance goes on Dance, dance, wherever you may be I am the lord of the dance, said he And
1: I lead
3: you all wherever you may be And I lead you all in the dance, said he Put me down and I leapt up high I am the life that will never, never die i live in you if you live in me I am the lord of the dance, said he Dance, dance, wherever you may be I am the lord of the dance, said he And I lead you all wherever you may be And I lead you all in the dance, said he
0: Lord of the Dance, bringing back memories of school days for Philip Longworth. On the 27th of January last year, the island marked Holocaust Memorial Day with a national service which followed the theme set for 2022, which was One Day. A stark reminder that life can fatally change forever in the space of just one day. And on the programme around that time, we heard stories from several Holocaust survivors, including Philip In 1941, 11-year-old Filip Lazowski and his family were among the Jews driven out of their village in Poland by the Nazis and forced to live in a ghetto. In the ghetto, Filip was separated from his family. It was then that he saw the Nazis sending children and the elderly to their death. But he also noticed that they were sparing families with adults who worked, like doctors, tailors and shoe repairers. Philip is now aged 91 and is a rabbi. Here, with a little help from his 86-year-old wife, Ruth, Philip tells how a bit of quick thinking saved his life.
4: I saw a woman standing with two girls, and she was a nurse. So I went over to her and I asked her, would you be kind enough to take me as your son? She said, if they let me live with two children... Maybe they let me live with three, hold on to my dress. We survived. And even though I saw her only for 15, 20 minutes, I never forgot her face. I was able to come to the United States in 1947. I was 17 years old.
0: Can you describe life after that?
4: Years later, a fellow got married. And I didn't want to go to the wedding. I didn't have fancy clothes. Also, I don't dance. But I went and sitting at the table, I said, I come from the town of Belitza. A lady was sitting next to me. She said, you know, a girlfriend told me a story. They saved a boy from Belitza And we don't know if he's alive. When she finished telling me the story, I realized that I am the boy. I says, where do they live? And I called the lady that saved me. And I promised to come to visit her. While there, I noticed the two girls. They were 18, 19 years old and uh, growing up.
0: (laughs) That was me. I was
5: that girl.
4: (laughs) Yes. Your mother saved my life. I then married you, and that's how our family began. We have been together as husband and wife for 66 years. We had three children, seven grandchildren. So, all in all, I am very thankful to be alive. God was good to us. Ordinary People is the theme for
0: the Holocaust Memorial Day 2023, and we'll be marking this important memorial again on this program later this month. Love was in the air on the February program nearest to Valentine's Day. But the most beautiful love story came from Louise Timmins, who'd actually come into the studio to talk about her work as head of fundraising with the Leprosy Mission. But as we chatted, it became clear that there was another very powerful story to be told, not directly about the work of the Leprosy Mission although it has its roots in Louise's many years spent working for the charity, particularly at the famous Anandaban Hospital in Nepal. Let's listen again to a beautiful story of love, patience, prayer and trust in God, and of a Nepalese baby girl called Marika. Our story starts in the year 2011.
6: We adopted our, our tiny little girl from a um, an orphanage just outside of Kathmandu. She was tiny and malnourished and really desperate for love. It was a six-year wait to get her. We didn't know we were going to get her till actually a week before we actually did. So it's a very long wait, jumping through many different hoops with many different money-making operations on both sides of the sea. But yeah finally in 2011 we went to meet her and our first month together was spent at Anandaban Hospital which is um, such a special place and it was so wonderful to see how the doctors tended to her lovingly as they do to the patients affected by leprosy and they really made us feel part of the family. My first visit to, to Anandaban actually was back in 2009 when my husband Paul and I led the leprosy mission trek to raise money for, for my job at Anandaban. And we spent so much time shadowing the staff and seeing how gracious they were with patients and hearing all of the stories of, of, you know, rejection and loss and the things that they'd had to face because they had leprosy. And it really, you know, laid Nepal on our hearts as somewhere that, you know, we really felt that we could make a difference. So that's why we, we, we pursued uh, international National adoption there must have been times
0: that that you needed to remind yourself that God's hand was on this because mm-hmm. six years is a long time it must have taken a big emotional strain and stress on you and your husband
6: yeah it really did and that that's such a good point about God's hand being on it I mean when, when we got through all of the adoption procedures and we were granted permission etc and we thought everything was going to happen I painted a whole nursery and bought all of the equipment now when you bear in mind that it was another six years years and I painted it back cream again but every time every time we thought you know have we heard this right is this the right thing for us to do is this you know where God is taking us there was one time when we were really really thinking have we made a mistake and the very next day a magazine came through our door which said focus on Nepal and a big picture of a Nepalese child we just kept Focus. We really felt that's where God was leading us. And every time we doubted that, he definitely sent us a very clear message that that was, you know, where we were supposed to go. So after a very long six year wait, it was in December, actually 2010, when I sat at my desk at the leprosy mission at work. And an email came from the head of the leprosy mission in Nepal. And his name is shivaka Candle. And he is such an amazing man of God. And he's now he's now part of our family. And he stands in the gap for my daughter where she hasn't got any family. But anyway, he sent us a picture and you can imagine after a six year wait and the top of the email was like, this is your daughter. And I feel quite, Im- quite emotional now even talking about it. And there was this picture of this little girl, she was eight months old, and then nothing, nothing again from December. And then in June, we had another email which came through from the Nepali authorities that said, you need to come out within the next four weeks if you want to adopt from Nepal. And she was the very last child to come out of Nepal before they closed the doors since then, basically forever. Forever. and God really undertook for us we had a special letter of dispensation to travel from Michael Gove so many things just conspired together to make it happen for us it was a very difficult difficult time the first few days this little baby at 16 months hadn't really ever had any solid food she'd only just had like a kind of a thick a very thick milk she was so so badly malnourished no hair she'd never seen a man before she was absolutely terrified particularly of my husband and of us new smells and new new language and it was so difficult for her but just step by step she started making sort of movements that she was going to come to me until eventually she just um she just came onto my chest and she sat there and she looked at me for ten minutes. I'm going to cry now, sorry. And she just looked at me and she fell asleep, and my husband just cried because for six years he had prayed that God would bind my new child's heart to mine and mine to hers, and it's such a lovely story that we were at the hospital back at Anandaban less than a week later. And she was there with my husband laughing and he was blowing raspberries on her tummy and, you know, as you do with a baby. And one of the volunteers at the hospital said, you know what, Louise, it's taken you six years to adopt that little girl and six days for her to adopt you. Just a real lovely story of God's undertaking in so many special ways.
0: Such a moving story, Louise. I can understand that even after some years, it would still touch you as deeply. Yeah,
6: it does. How do you
0: talk to your little girl Mm. about her previous life?
6: We've been very open from day one. There's pictures of Nepal and her life before she came to us, which was only 16 months, all over the house. She is so proud to be a Nepali girl, and she's very proud of her heritage, you know, and she will talk about it. We were very fortunate to have Shavaka and his family at ban So we went back when she was seven um, and basically moved into the community. So it wasn't like going and staying in a hotel and looking at it from outside. We went back to her orphanage and I have gone back nearly every year to the orphanage just to see how I can help. But she's very proud of her heritage. We're part of a Nepali community, a small one in the UK as well.
0: Now you have another adopted child. I
6: do. And that's a lovely story actually Two in which Marika was involved after we'd adopted Marika I wasn't sure if I wanted to have another child but we put our names on the adoption register and we just thought well I didn't go chasing anything but we just thought if God's going to do something he will and um, Marika was three at the time and we were on holiday actually in Spain and we just passed a little monastery and as tourists we went in and she said mummy let's say a prayer so I said okay okay what are we going to pray for and she said dear lord please will you send me a little brother to <laughs> get emotional again. Again now, Sorry. And then the very next day, we had an email come through from Ipswich Social Services, nowhere near where I live, to say there's a little boy that they've got and he's of mixed heritage. He's actually half Afghan and half Lithuanian. And because we'd been able to manage, that's not the right word, but you know what I mean, a child of a different heritage, would we consider taking this little boy? And so I thought, well, that's God, isn't it? I can't, I can't say no. And that was in the October and by the February he was with us. So, yeah, another amazing story, actually. And it's so nice when they're fighting. I always say to Marika, <laughs> you prayed for him. Sometimes I feel a little bit bad for finn because we talk about nepal an awful lot at home because obviously that's one of the countries that i work in um, and the leprosy mission doesn't work in afghanistan or lithuania so it's been harder for me to to kind of bring that to life for him but actually finn has started asking questions so we're actually going to go to lithuania at the end of this month for two days so that he can actually see the country that that's where his heritage is even though his mother was in the uk
0: Inspirational, moving, and of course, there is only one hymn that we can play, isn't there? at the end of this
6: conversation? <laughs> yes, thank you.
7: Oh Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the works Thy hand hath made, I see the stars, I hear the mighty thunder. Thy power throughout The universe displays. Then sings my soul My Saviour God to Thee How great Thou art How great Thou art Then sings my soul Be God to thee! How great thou art! Son, not sparing, sent him to die. I scarce can take it in that on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take. Away Watch. shall fill my hearts. Then shall I bow in a humble adoration, and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Then sing
8: soul
0: thank you to Louise Timmins head of fundraising at the leprosy mission sharing her story of love trust and patience that brought her children, Marika and Finn, into her life. By the time we reached Easter Day, the world was already gripped by the tragic situation of the war in Ukraine. The well-known composer John Rutter was deeply touched and responded in what was, for him, the most natural way.
9: Like everybody, um, I have been shocked and dismayed by the events of recent days. And the first thing I wanted to do was write some music that would respond in my own way. I went to a late night service in my old college chapel, where they sang a setting of a lovely Ukrainian prayer. So having encountered the text in another musical setting on Wednesday night on Thursday, I wrote my own music. I hope the meaning of the text will resonate in people's hearts. I had the opportunity to put it together at very short notice with this wonderful group of 300 people. It still speaks with my own voice, but in terms that reach out to the Ukrainian people in their hour of need. Good Lord, protect the Ukraine. Give her strength, courage, faith, hope. Amen.
5: God of all peoples and nations, who created all things alive and breathing, united and whole, show us the way of peace that is your overwhelming presence. We hold before you the peoples of Ukraine and Russia, every child and every adult. We long for the time when weapons of war are beaten into ploughshares, when nations no longer lift up sword against nation. We cry out for your peace. Protect those who only desire to live in security and safety. Comfort those who fear for their lives and the lives of their loved ones. Be with those who are bereaved. Change the hearts of those set on violence and aggression. And fill leaders with the wisdom that leads to peace. Kindle again in us a love of our neighbor and a passion for justice to prevail, and a renewed recognition that we all play a part in peace. Creator of all, hear our prayer and bring us peace. Amen.
0: John Rutter conducting a choir of 300 voices singing the musical setting of a Ukrainian prayer that he wrote to reach out to the people of Ukraine in this, their hour of need. The additional prayer for peace was by our local Christian Aid representative, Louise Whiteleg. The subject of mental health is something we talked about several times last year. Ruth Rice explained how she founded a charity as a result of her own mental breakdown. Renew well being offer cafe style spaces, usually linked to a church, where it's okay to not be okay, where everyone is warmly welcomed without question or judgment, and gently helped to find their own pathway to mental and spiritual health. And Ruth returned each week from midsummer to Christmas with a letter by letter A to Z of suggestions for taking care of our mental health. I talked with Paul Martin of Celebrate Recovery, which offers a Christ-centred 12-step recovery programme designed to help people address a variety of hurts, hang-ups and habits. But it was our own Reverend Steve Ingril, Methodist minister based in Onken with his wife, Reverend Rebecca, and their two daughters, whose painfully honest story of his own mental health issues brought the greatest response.
10: When I was in my last 18 months of training at Durham, a number of really significant life events took place. I got married. Rebecca and I were both told we had been cleared for stationing, which in Methodist-speak means we were accepted to go out into churches and fulfil our vocation as ministers. Our first child was born in Durham Hospital, and I had a breakdown. It was quite simply the worst experience of my life. I vividly remember the way my brain froze. I went literally overnight from being happy and productive to spending a week where I was sat for hours a day in front of my computer, trying to complete my final dissertation, tears streaming down my face, unable to string a single sentence together. As for God and my prayer life? well. It seemed as if there was an iron ceiling above me and this ceiling was getting closer and closer, not just pressing me down, but also blocking any prayers I was trying to send up. I remember thinking, what on earth is wrong with me? This is meant to be the happiest time of my life. I had a wonderful wife, a beautiful daughter who I couldn't love any more than I did. And on top of that, I was doing my best to be obedient to God's call on my life. So why? Why is this being allowed to happen? After about a week of this, I had a tutorial, and my tutor also happened to be a doctor in psychology. She made an appointment for me with a GP, and I was diagnosed with severe clinical depression. With the help of doctors and counselling, it took me over six months to simply reach a point where I was able to function again, and gradually, very gradually, the darkness lifted. Over the next few years there were still times where the black dog came calling, but over time I've learned to recognise the warning signs and have strategies in place to ward him off. I'm sharing this with you simply because mental health is so rarely talked about in our churches. Too often there is a stigma still attached, perhaps not helped by the fact that in Paul's letters to the churches he often instructs them to rejoice in the Lord always, And Jesus himself said, in effect, that whatever life throws at us, we should consider it joy. But I think we need to remind ourselves that as human beings, we are creatures of body, mind and spirit. When someone breaks a bone, we don't expect them to go running the next day. So why do we have this expectation that we can be all rejoicing all the time when some are battling not physical health problems, but mental health problems? We are creatures of body, mind, and spirit. I remain profoundly grateful to doctors who prescribed me antidepressants to treat the physiological aspect of my depression. There's a complex mix of hormones and other chemicals that get out of balance in our brains which contribute to this illness. We are creatures of body. I'm grateful also to counsellors who helped me to untangle my messed-up and mixed-up thoughts and emotions that fed into and perpetuated my depression in a sort of vicious circle. We are creatures of mind. I'm grateful to the loving Christian community that I was a part of, who accepted me despite my turmoil and helped me to see the light of Christ even in the times of my deepest darkness. We are creatures of spirit. I was fortunate in having that strong Christian support around me. And I long for the day when all our churches openly recognise that faith is not a vaccine against mental health issues. It is okay not to be okay. And our job as the Christian community is to point people towards those wonderful organisations of which we have so many here on our island that come alongside people and can help to heal body and heal mind, whilst also coming alongside them without any judgement or expectation, simply providing a safe space where God can reach in, and their spirit can be at rest, and find its healing also.
8: Why are you so
0: the church celebrated the Feast of St Columba, the Irish monk who lived in the 6th century. With just 12 companions, he sailed from the shores he loved and settled on a bleak island called Iona off the coast of Scotland. The monks made occasional visits to the Scottish mainland, preaching Christianity, and very soon their community had 150 members. Columba spent the rest of his life on Iona, praying, fasting and teaching his monks. And long before his death at the end of the 6th century, he was regarded as a saint and is today a beloved figure in Celtic tradition. The beautifully blended voices of Marlene Hendy and Dillis Sowry, and the invocation to St. Columba, specially arranged for them by Dr. Fenella Bazin. In September, we were saddened to learn of the death of popular television and radio personality Bill Turnbull. During his time as a presenter of BBC's Songs of Praise, Bill came to the island to film some programmes. He came in 2014 during our Island of Culture year and said that meeting John and Margaret Kenyuk on their farm was one of the high points of his visit. Let's listen again to some of the soundtrack from that edition of Songs of Praise as Bill meets John at Balalice and learns something of his love of the works of our national poet T.E. Brown and of the Manx countryside. There's also music recorded in the Cathedral in Peel that featured in Songs of Praise, followed by Bill's own comments about the long-running and very popular TV programme and about his own faith.
3: Up your jumps and out in the sun and you fancy the
11: day'll never be done. John Kenyuk is a popular radio broadcaster on the Isle of Man with a particular passion for the work of its national poet T.E. Brown.
3: Looking for eggs.
11: Or the in fact, John a lives, lives in the house where Brown or spent Prime his childhood Prime. holidays in the early 1800s. So here we are then, a picture of T.E. Brown himself in the hallway that he trod as a child. It is. That photograph once hung in every school in the Isle of Man.
3: And when I look now, I can see the stairs that that boy would have climbed when he was so oh, eight, nine or ten. Um, and the feeling that it gives me is indescribable. He managed to capture what so many people have such great difficulty in describing. There is this spirituality about the island, this, this thing that we can't describe that Brown captured and set down in his poetry, and I think that's why I love it. The, the island has a soul of its own, perhaps? The island has, definitely, has a soul. And in what we're now into our year of culture, that will mean different things to different people. But to me, we are displaying now to anybody who will look at us or watch us or hear us, we are displaying our soul. How we live, what's important to us, what we value. We're seven generations here in this particular area. We've become part of the landscape. I could have chosen any career um, at school, but the call of the land was so strong, and it still is. It it lends to a rounded life, a life with purpose and direction in partnership with with the God who created it all. So you'd choose the same path again? Uh, uh, Without a shadow of doubt. I could tell you of one particular day in the harvest, which I look back now, and I realize it was a defining moment in my life. The day we were cutting corn in the mill field at Slewellian with a tractor and a binder waiting for the dew to lift and looking at the scene around us and this field of golden corn in front of us a stand of beech above that leading up to the farmyard the green fields of the farm where the stock were all grazing and then the stone mountain wall along the mountain of Slewellian and above that the purple heather and the bluest September sky that you could imagine. And I knew that day, this is where I will spend my life. And I thank God that I've been able to do that.
11: to travel around the country to really interesting places, really beautiful places, meet some terrific people who've got very good stories to tell. And a lot of people think, oh, songs of praise, it's just hymns and religious stuff. Well, it is, but at the same time, it has really, really good content in it as well, and that's what I've enjoyed so much doing. A, a lot of people I know, I know watch it say, say, oh, I watch it for the singing. I suspect a lot of people also watch it because they don't really want to go to church, but they want to keep in touch. I would venture that many more people are religious than than would confess to it. Deep in their hearts, there's something there that they want to believe in. They just don't necessarily want to practice, either because they're apathetic, they're a little bit lazy about it, they're a bit shy, they have a thing about church. And so Songs of Praise will draw in some of those people, possibly, who wouldn't otherwise go to a, a service of worship, but want to touch it somehow. It does mean a lot to people, I know know that, and it's so lovely to be part of a programme that does give so much to people and is so well-received. I'm Church of England. Occasionally I even got to take Evensong because they were short of staff. They were going to drop the service, and we said, well, don't do that. Let's just see if we can do it. It was a really interesting experience. We did the service as the vicar would have. And to do it from the other side is fascinating because actually what you're doing is really guiding people through a service and they depend on you hugely to get it right. But it's a big responsibility and one I used to take very seriously but we got a lot out of it at the same time.
0: Bill Turnbull, thank you for coming to the island and for bringing songs of praise to us.
11: It's always lovely to be here, Judith. I had the most marvellous Manx skippers this morning. They were the most delicious skippers I've ever had, actually. They were wonderful. Well, that's a lovely memory to take back. (laughs) It is. (laughs)
0: remembering the late Bill Turnbull when he recorded an edition of BBC Television's Songs of Praise here on the island in 2014, alongside one of the guests on that programme, the late John Kenyack, who had the gift of saying so much while using very few words. May they both rest in peace. It's been really difficult to know what to feature in this look-back over a year of programmes, so I've taken as a guide the topics that have produced the most comments. We caught up with the racing preacher, Andy Haynes, learned about the work of permanent deacons in conversation with Graham Easton, and welcomed Miles McBean, National Director of Scripture Union England and Wales, as he experienced his very first beach mission in Port St Mary. In June, we celebrated the Platinum Jubilee of Her Majesty the Queen, but in September, the tone was very different as we devoted two programmes to marking her death and giving thanks for her exemplary life of selfless service and Christian witness. Dr Doug Fox, who is both scientist and committed Christian, explained how there is, for him, no conflict between science and religion And another autumn visitor was one of the most senior officials in the Roman Catholic Church. There are only around 200 cardinals worldwide, each chosen by the Pope himself, and their duties include acting as the Pope's principal advisers and generally aiding in the government of the Roman Catholic Church throughout the world. Cardinal Michael Fitzgerald is one of three cardinals living in the UK. And despite travelling the world and dedicating his life to Arabic-Islamic studies and to strengthening relations between Christians and Muslims, he is now very happy to work, technically in retirement, as an assistant priest in an inner-city parish in Liverpool. His whole conversation was filled with his desire to serve wherever he was called and this is a good opportunity for me to say a sincere word of thanks to everyone who's contributed to the program. I am truly grateful. And if you've heard anything that's particularly interested you this morning, and you'd like to listen to the full feature, then just go to manxradio.com, and you'll find podcasts of all last year's at your service programmes, available to listen at your leisure. And each podcast has a full description so you can find exactly what you want to listen to without too much searching. So, how to finish today? Well, firstly, with an invitation from the Manx Language Development Officer, Ruth Gell to a service in Kirkchrist-Lazare next Sunday afternoon.
12: On Sunday the 8th of January at 3pm in Kirkchrist-Lazare, in Cheshire Gilgach, who are the Manx Language Society, they will be holding Shevaishanolik, which is the Manx Language Christmas service, which always happens at the start of January. And each year... It happens in a different church around the Isle of Man. In 2022, it happened in St Runius in the parish of Morown, and this year it's going to be in Kirk Christ Lazare. So just heading on up there to Ramsey at 3 pm. If you've never been in Kirk Christ Lazare, it's a lovely, lovely church. It's got lots of lovely Manx on the walls, and it's a really nice opportunity to go to a fully Monolingual Manx service, and this is a tradition that's been going a very long time now, um, run by Inchezic Gilgach. Um, it's a lovely opportunity to go and hear the carols sung in Manx have a go at yourself, listen to the readings as well in Manx really experience something completely through the medium of Manx so I'd I'd really encourage you to go along to that if you are able, 3 o'clock on Sunday the 8th of January and there'll be refreshments afterwards and if you want to find more about Inchejit Gilgach you can look on their website which is ycg.im and they are a fab organisation, they've been running for over 120 years so they are our oldest language organisation here on the Isle of Man and we owe a lot to everybody who's put their time in voluntarily over that, you know, very long time they've been going.
0: Thank you, Ruth. And I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. So I went forth, and finding the hand of God, trod gladly into the night, and he led me towards the hills and the breaking of day in the lone east. This is Judith saying thank you for sharing this first program of a new year. I wish you and those you love Blaine Vinor, a truly blessed and peace-filled new year and a very
5: good morning.